welcoming and texting and all kinds of stuff. Um, what Jordan didn't tell you is at the tree lighting, uh, I'll put it this way. Some of you believe that you have, you have the, the awesome skill of um, cooking chili. And I just want to let you know you have an opportunity to prove it <laughs> uh, that night. So it, we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to have you provide a lot of that food. If you think you have good chili... Um, and that you really, you, if, if you don't, just buy a can of Hormel, throw it in a crock pot and say you made it and no one will know the difference. Don't try something out on a bunch of us. We're all going to be cold and we're going to eat a lot of it. Don't try anything like new. Just something you know that's tried and true. You're good at chili. You're good at making it. We want to eat it if it's good. If it's not good, just come and enjoy someone else's. But if you want to, if you want to contribute, honestly, to the, that tree lighting, which, you know, you know, Ladera Ranch has their tree lighting on the 6th. And go to that one and just tell everybody, you want to see a real tree lighting? Sunday night, my church, uh, and I'll bring chili, okay? So come have chili. If you want to do that, talk to Kim out at the Welcome Center. She's now walking up the aisle. She's preparing crockpots as we speak. You guys don't know what's up. She's walking out. But you can talk to her at the Welcome Center and say you're interested in doing that. Um, but really good to be with you guys. We are in, um, we're back in our series looking at the book of Luke, um, where it's called The Outsider's Guide to Jesus. And basically, the Gospel of Luke is an account of Jesus' life, um, an ordered account of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, in such a way that people could go, did this stuff really happen about Jesus? We're looking, you know, this is, the book of Luke is written probably right around 60 or so A.D. And people are looking back, looking at Jesus and going, did this really, these are the grandkids and the, you know, people going, this, did Jesus really do all the stuff he said he did? Is he really who he is? And so it's been, so far it's been a great series. We've had a lot of great comments from people, people um, that I hadn't seen in a long time, people coming back, new folks saying, I'm, I'm glad I came because this has become a really interesting, you know, way to kind of find my way into church community and to Jesus and stuff. So it's been very, very cool. Um, I do want to say this. I was, um, I, yesterday I was watching all these football games. One of them was pretty particularly good. But anyways, um, anyways, there's a lot of good football games. But um, I'm watching these games, and I realize we have, most of us now have a power over our televisions, which is that when things are going on, we can like, we like if something happens, something really important happens, we can always pause the game. And, you know, look at our children when they say something to us. Uh, or uh, if there's, you know, something important like that. Or if we have to go to the bathroom or whatever else is, we can stop all of the, the games, which are the television, which is essentially frivolous activity. We can put it on pause to take care of the things that we have to do, the things that are meaningful. And I thought today, I watched a lot of football yesterday, and it was great. It was really, there's some great football games. But I thought for a moment, what we tend to do around this season, more than anything else, is we're engaged in a lot of stuff that's basically more or less frivolous. There's so much stuff that we're doing. We're kind of running over and over again. And they're just, I, I, someone stopped me this past week and they said, you know what I appreciate is that we get a chance to pause at church. And I thought, we actually get to pause to do the things that really matter. And so um, today is going to be a day we pause. Um, you might notice if you've been with us before, there's a little moment when we pray at the beginning of our service that just is an opportunity at the beginning of the message anyways. is a moment to sort of reflect on, to stop, to say one of the most revolutionary things we could do in a world of busyness is to actually stand still and allow God to speak to us. And so that's what we do every single week. So if this is your first time with us, if anything happens that, you know, you're like not sure what else we do here, you don't know why the wall's here, you don't get everything, I get all that. But you might go, at least what they did was they paused. And so that's what we're going to do. Would you pray? And then we'll, we'll get into today's message. Father, we are increasing in our busyness. We're increasing in our anxiety. We wonder about, even after last week and our, our great and beautiful Thanksgiving service of being together on, on, on Wednesday, Father, we still have these, this, this sense of worry, this undergirded fear over all, everything that we're doing about how we're going to be able to accomplish all that we're supposed to accomplish. And Father, we want to be and live out of gratitude. 
We want that to be not just something we do once, but that's something we do all the time. Father, I know that there are people in this room who are trying to string things together. People who are holding their families together with a little bit of of scotch tape, (laughs) hoping that nothing falls apart. Others of us have already seen things sort of fall apart and we're wondering, is there some way that you might speak to us, God? And so, Jesus, whether we're in the place where everything seems to be going terrific, where we could be, there could be no greater celebration in our lives, or whether we're in a place where we're experiencing a deep level of anxiety or fear or doubt or pain, Father, we pray that you might meet us. And so we pause. We give you a moment, God, that you might speak to us in the stillness and in the quiet. So we give you a few moments, Father. Speak to us. Father, we believe that you intend to speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit in words that are beyond words, that you intend to minister to us, to reveal yourself to us, that we might know it is you who is at work among us. And so, Father, I pray that for those that need to be comforted, they would be comforted. For those that need to be challenged, they would be challenged today. But ultimately, Jesus, we get a picture of your great love. Um, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, Hey, if you want to follow along, got an outline you can take a look at. Um, it's in your bulletin. If you want to follow along on the screen, great. If you want to uh, follow along in your own Bible, great. We're, um, and in, in Luke chapter 2, we'll get there in a minute. But years ago, I was speaking to, um, to the, at the Mariners Irvine campus. There's four campuses. This is, this is, you know, the premier flagship campus of all the campuses. Obviously, you know that. Um, no, there's four campuses. There's one in Irvine, which, you know, it's, it's like that was the first of the campuses. It's, you know, it's enormous. We refer to it affectionately as the chair warehouse by the lake. If you haven't yet been to it, it's awesome. And it is, a, it's, you know, where, um, you know, we, that's where we have all of our staff meetings and stuff. And then there's one in Huntington Beach and one in Ocean Hills. And um, all of us are getting together. And so anyway, I, I, from time to time, and I'm speaking one time at the Irvine campus. And this is back when I was a high school pastor. And I came across an article. Some of you guys may have seen this before or heard about some of this stuff. High school students, I know that you're in here, you'll have heard of this before. But this is, um, years ago, this guy was trying to figure out how to get rid of teenagers from hanging around his store. So he figures out, he could, some of you high school guys know where this is going, um, he figured out that he's all, he got a hold of a scientist or whatever and figured out that there is a, a pitch, a sound, that only high school age, people like under 25 can hear, and nobody else can hear it. Like, just because you get older, you have a condition, and you're, you know, all of what happens is you lose the ability to hear super high-pitched tones. And so this guy installed this system to get rid of teenagers, which I thought, as a high school pastor, it kind of got my interest. So here's just this New York Times sort of excerpts. Here's what it says. Mr. Guff planned to install a sound system that would blast classical music into his parking lot, another known method to horrify hangout youths into dispersing, but never got around to it. But last month, Mr. Stapleton, this is the guy, this is the scientist guy, gave him a mosquito, that's the name of this thing that gets rid of teenagers, for a free trial. The results were almost instantaneous. It was as if someone had used an anti-teenager spray around the entrance, the way you might spray your sofas to keep pets off. Where disaffected youths used to congregate, now there is no one. He continues, this is the interview of one of the girls who's like hearing it. She says, it's loud and squeaky and it just goes right through you. And then he says about this girl, that girl used to be a pain shouting abuse and bad language, he said to the 12-year-old. Now she'll just come in, do her shopping, and then go. And then saying about this, he says, I don't want to make it hurt. It just has to nag at them. Now I was like, what is this about? So there's a follow-up article, not too much longer after that, in the New York Times that said this. 
This is where it's great. So there's this power system here saying, we don't want you nightmare kids hanging out with us. Get out of here. And so here's what they do. They install this thing. Now, this is where it's the best. High school kids know where this is going already. But in a bit, this is the follow-up story. But in a bit of techno jujitsu, someone, which, by the way, nobody knew that was a hyphenated phrase until right now. There's now techno jujitsu. Someone, a person unknown at this time, but probably not someone with this condition that reduces your ear, whatever, realized that the mosquito which uses this common adult abnormality to adults' advantage, could be turned against them. The mosquito noise was reinvented as a ringtone. Think about what this means. Uh, high school kids, any of, you, any of you guys have this downloaded as a ringtone? High school kids? There's a couple last service that did. None of you guys? Okay. Last service, there was two high school kids who had this in their, as their phone. Here's what this means. So there's this sound that only teenagers can hear and no adults can hear. Meaning... Even more silent than, a, than the vibration of a cell phone is a sound that no adult can hear. That means at school there is a tone that only high school students and junior high kids could hear. Meaning they could have their phone on and nobody else would know it. People could call and text each other and for a momentary, you know, like sort of blast of pain, a little, ah, what's that? They know they got a text message and none of the adults would be any the wiser. <laughs> In your face, adults. Now, This is a perfect example of something called subversion. There's power that's being set up, a system of power set up to try to ruin or take away from the freedom of these high high school kids or junior high kids. Junior high kids say, ha, 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 there is this power you've used for evil, which we will then use for our own good, and we will undermine the entire system you're trying to create. That's subversion. Now, when we talk about and we get kind of excited about Christmas, very rarely do we think about the subversive message of Christmas. We think about all kinds of things. We think about the nativity. We think about Clark Griswold. We think about all of the family conversations, all those people you don't know how to buy gifts for that you're like, well, I don't know. We'll just get one of those baskets at TJ Maxx and just kind of hope that it like, is enough of something that they might like in there because we don't know what to get for them. All that, all that kind of stuff that we do. But rarely do we think about it being subversive. But what if just at least part of the story of Christmas, amid all of the nativity scenes and the Christmas pageants and whatever other song, of the songs that we sing, all that stuff, and the hot cocoa, and all that stuff, what if there's at least a significant part of it that's intended to be subversive? That what Luke is doing as he's telling the Christmas story isn't just trying to set Charles Schultz up for the ultimate, you know, Linus and Lucy, you know, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown special. What's actually happening here is something where he's trying to establish that there is a new thing being done here, that there is a power structure that's being subverted. Now, when you talk about subversion, there's like three things that have to happen. One is this. There's something wrong with the status quo. People have to look at the way the world is and go, that isn't okay. There's something wrong with the way everything is functioning, that there, it needs to be undone. Secondly, there has to be a, a, a belief about another way or another world that's available to people other than the status quo. And third, you have to have this, you have to, have the, you have to live in the reality that the means to overthrow previous kingdoms or ways of being are not available to you. So you have to do it another way. You have to do it by subversion. And that's the story that we see at the beginning of the birth of Jesus. We don't really think about it in those terms, but that's precisely what's happening. There is a story of power and a story of humility. Or there, I should say it this way, there's a story of power and there's a story of power wrapped in humility. There's a story of lords and, and imperial taxation and money and means and there's a kid born in a barn. 
and this will be one of the most subversive things that ever happens in the history of mankind. Here's what it says in Luke 2, chapter, or verse 1. It says this. As I find my notes, here it is. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, it probably says as a, as a heading over that, the birth of Jesus. But the way that the birth of Jesus story starts is that there is a census taken. Now, when, when a Roman governor, or I'm sorry, a Roman emperor takes a census... It's not just because he's curious about how many people are there. The purpose of a census is for taxation purposes. The reason why a Roman empire would sort of be established here is to establish that there is power there. There is power and there is more power growing because what, the, what Caesar intends to do is take money from people. And what he's got to do is fund his own military interests and the way in which you keep people who are senators, who are supposed to be other, well, these are people in the city of Rome, who are supposed to be opposed to an emperor, the way you keep them from rising up against you is you make sure that they have all of their material needs met. And so you tax the people who live out on the fringes to the, bare, to the very bitter bones. So they have nothing at all. They have just only barely enough to live, and the rest of their money goes to fund this incredibly powerful military enterprise. Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, here's the contrast. Powerful Roman emperor, Caesar, taxing the people, taking a census so that he can tax the people. And then you have this other guy being told, a peasant from a town, small town called Nazareth, into this town of Bethlehem um, so that he can be counted. And the word town is actually, some of you guys, in older translations of the Bible, you have the word city, the city of David or the city of Bethlehem or the city of Nazareth. Even the word town is probably too big of a word. I mean, it's a trailer park. It's a campground. Bethlehem probably has 100 people that live there. Nazareth was almost an unknown city, even to archaeologists up until about 40, 50 years ago. People were like, we're not even sure this city even exists. They had, it was so hard to find it because it was barely a nothing. It was barely a blip on the radar of all of the Roman Empire. And here goes this guy with, he's got this, you know, connection to David. This Joseph guy's got a connection to this person, David, who's significant in Jewish history, in Hebrew history. And then there's this, he's with this woman who's pregnant, but there's this scandal around them. Because we know the story that through, through the power of the Holy Spirit, she became pregnant with the, the Messiah, with Jesus. But nobody else believes you when you say stuff like that. You just sound like a crazy person. Oh, Joseph and I, we, we haven't, we're, we're not. No, it wasn't us. No, no. There's a much more logical explanation. We've been faithful to, you know, stay pure until our marriage day. But it was, it was the Holy Spirit. That's how I'm pregnant. And people look at you like, huh, what? That doesn't make any sense. You guys messed up, whatever. That's a, we'll just work from there here. But there's a scandal here. You're supposed to wait. You didn't do that. And so now all of a sudden you are walking around and she's, she's got this evidence of your misstep and it's everywhere and everybody knows it. And there's this scandal that surrounds this couple. And so they're wandering back home to their house, the jo Joseph's hometown. And here's what it says. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, if you have heard the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you have a different version of the Bible, a different translation. It says that there's no room for them at the inn. 
Well, this doesn't say in, it says gestrum, which is a more accurate translation. In the ancient world, first century ancient world, there is, um, there is a, most people live in a one-room house. On one side, where it's a little bit elevated, is where the people would reside. There was whatever kind of cooking and living and that kind of space in one side. Take a step down into a lower level, and this is where the animals would reside, inside, indoors, with all their stink and everything else that animals have going on. They're there. Dividing the upper area from the lower area would be a, a, a thing, a feeding area called a manger. Now, what would happen would be was that in a, a, a man was going to be married, like a guy like Joseph. Typically what would happen is he would go to his father's house and he would go to prepare a place for his bride-to-be. So he would say, I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'll come back and get you when it's ready. And that would be an addition, an add-on to the house. Sometimes it was above the house. This is the same word that's used to describe the upper room, if you're familiar with the rest of the story, um, that comes up later in the Bible. So you have then this simple house with maybe an additional room occasionally if people are adding on to it. And Joseph and Mary go to visit their, his, their house. Now, we have in our mind that, you know, that this is a kind of place where, like, there's no room at the end. We have in our, in our head, like, oh, they just go to the Bethlehem version of whatever Motel 6 or Best Western there is or whatever that might be, Holiday Inn Express, whatever it is. Only there's not that kind of thing there because he has to be at his ancestral home. Campgrounds don't also have a Best Western. There would be that in Jerusalem, but that's too far away. That's not where he needs to be counted for the census. He has to be in his house. So he goes to his house. He goes to his ancestral home of his father and him and his scandalized wife-to-be walk into this house and she's pregnant and clearly someone of a higher social status in their own family has taken the guest room, so they have to be in the barn. Now, you know what this is like. How many of you guys, either at Thanksgiving or coming up at Christmas, will host your parents in your house, just in your own house? You'll host them, <laughs> proudly raising hands there. Yes, glory to God in the highest. I love this. It's the greatest thing in the world. Now, what will happen is, if you're hosting and you have, and you have kids living in your house and you are hosting your parents, at least for some part of they're going to spend the night at least once, your kids are on the air mattresses. It looks like this, right? Show this real quick. That's what it looks like in your house, right? Hey, mom and dad are coming over. You guys start blowing up the air mattress, right? You guys are out in the living room. Now, that generally turns into total, like, WrestleMania. But just at least when they get tired, they look like that, right? The kids get booted. And mom and dad get to have the best place in the house. I'm reminded of that, um, the, the scene in um, Christmas Vacation. We can, we can take it off the screen, that really high-quality picture. There we go. But um, the scene in Christmas Vacation where Audrey, you know, like the Griswold's kids always change every single <laughs> version of that movie. But the, the, the Audrey says to the mom, she says, would it be indecent to ask, you know, grandma and grandpa to get a hotel? And the, and the, mom, and the mom says, what can I say, dear? It's Christmas and we're all miserable. <laughs> And then she says, I have to share a bed with my brother. Do you know how sick and twisted that is? And the mom says, great line. She says, I have to share a bed with your father. Don't get so dramatic. (laughs) Now, in the ancient world, you could never have that conversation. Even to this day, in non-Western cultures, when when someone of a higher social status, and I know you're going, this is horrifying. I love my mom and I love my kids the same. I know, but you get how kids get booted out 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 of their room. Even today. I was talking with our outreach, our outreach director, uh, Maher, and we were talking together. And he said, I remember a time when my dad's dad came to live at our house. Maher grew up in Lebanon. And he goes, when my dad's dad came to live in our house, he didn't say how long he was staying. And so me and my sister had to live in another, just on the couch. 
There was no question, no one asked the question. It wasn't like, this might be bad for their sleep habits or you know, they're, gonna, they're trying out for a club soccer team and I wonder if they're gonna have enough sleep. There was none of those conversations. It was like, you're younger, you're on the couch, dad's staying here. Six months later, he decided to leave. That's just what you do. People of a higher social status get the best stuff. That's all that, that's all that there is. Some of you older people are like, let's bring that back. Let's get the, whatever that is. I want some of that. Now, so here's what's happening. Joseph shows up. Remember, he's showing up with a pregnant wife-to-be. And he's in such a place in the social standing that he has to be, he, him and his wife-to-be have to live with the animal. There's no room for you guys in the guest room. Someone else probably already has it because he can't go anywhere else except to his ancestral home to be counted. So you get to be in the barn. When it came time to give birth, she placed him in the manger, separating the place where the people live and the animals live, right in the middle of it. Now, remember the start of this whole account is about the powerful Caesar figuring out ways to take money to fund his military enterprise, his government enterprise. And then there is this picture of these two about, about whom there's not even room for them in their own house. Verse 6, or I'm sorry, um, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, when we think about the shepherds, generally we have in our mind, most of us probably did not grow up in a place where people were shepherding animals. Some of you may have. Some of you may have family who does. But most of us, we don't have any kind of idea what that's like. And at least in our mind, when we talk about shepherds, we imagine people who are kind of wonderfully endearing to the, you know, to the people in the first century, like, oh, there's the shepherds. They're kind of wonderful people. We love them. It's sort of like, you know, what, I, don't, I can't think of an analogy, but it's something like you, the way most of us would probably imagine someone who said they were a farmer to us. We'd be like, oh, wow, that's so great. We eat what you make. That's so awesome. I don't know what you, but there's something about that where you kind of think that's cool. Now, but that's not really the case. You see, shepherds in the mind of a first century person these are people who live among, the, they're among the lowest qualified people in the world. They sleep with animals. They're counted among these kinds of people. People who drive um, mules and camels, people who are sailors, and people who are tanners. Tanners are people who make the, um, they make like, you know, they take the animal skins and they make them fit for either, you know, a, a roof of something or a clothing or whatever, pants, whatever else it is. Not pants, they wear pants. But you get what I'm saying. They'd use them for like some kind of animal skin. And the way animal skin is tanned generally is by human urine, which means these are people who stamp around in their own urine. Shepherds are equated with these guys. Shepherds are people who lead their flocks to take crops that aren't their own. They graze their, they graze their flocks in you know, fields that don't belong to them. People count them as thieves and dirty and lowlifes. And the announcement about what's happening about, about God is going to come to these people these shepherds, the ones that nobody really thinks are worth anything, they, they're really kind of on the lowest rung of society. This is to whom the angels will appear. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, here's what he says. Don't be afraid, which is what all angels say, because they evidently scare everybody. So remember, if you ever thought you saw an angel and you weren't terrified, it's just a handsome person, okay? The angel shows up, scares these guys, and then, he, and then the angel says this. I bring you good news. The word good news in the Greek is the word euangelion. It's the word that we get, it's where we get words like evangelical, if you ever heard that word before, or evangelism. Evangelical just simply means like 
literally like good newsical is probably a good way to think of it that in those terms. Evangelism, if you ever heard that term, means good newsism. And so here's that word being used there, but it's not a Bible word. When Caesar was, when there was a, uh, Caesar had a child, or, this is the birth announcement, or when there was a, um, an official decree, the titles that would be called for Caesar were these things at the very beginning of that decree. They were these words, Prince of Peace, Savior and Lord. Son of God, Lord. That preamble to whatever the announcement was, was called the euangelion. Luke is taking the terms that are traditionally placed upon Caesar, the Lord, Savior, Son of God, all of that stuff, and he's using those terms to describe Jesus. The kid born in a barn whose own family couldn't make room for him. And he says over and over again in so many different subtle and beautiful ways, he's saying, there is a new Lord and it's not Caesar. The one called Savior and Son of God, it's not Caesar. It's someone else. It's this kid born in a barn. And you have, in verse 11, like you saw, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And what the angel says is, this is good news. Not just for some people, not for the power brokers in Rome, but for all the people. Because everybody in the Roman Empire had heard Caesar's brand of good news before. Hey everybody, good news. The Lord, the Son of God, Caesar, has conquered another land. That means there'll be more money to fund more military conquests. Good news everybody, Caesar has decided to take a census so we can take more of your money. And exercise more power. And everybody goes, I'm not sure that's good news. And the angel says... Speaking to the shepherds, I got good news for all the people. Not just some of the people, not just people who already have power. I have good news for all the people. And the good news is there is a new Lord. It is not Caesar. It is not the power brokers. It is not those who benefit or whose empires are built in the backs of the poor. It's something way different. Luke is undermining subverting all the royal language that's used for Caesar and applying it to Jesus here. Because people knew about Roman peace and they knew about Roman power. It involved oppression. and involved military might and intimidation. And there's something else being done here. The whole account, as we, as we go through Luke, you can read this, it's unbelievable, the whole Bible really. But as you look at Luke, the whole account of Jesus' life and ministry has this subversive overtone. The whole time, it's like, oh my gosh, what he's saying about these people who belong to Jesus and Jesus himself, his ministry is one that is subverting the way things already are, calling into question the status quo, imagining and bringing forward into, an exi- into existence a, an alternative to that reality and using means that are not available to those people that are, already, that are, being, that are being oppressed. It's amazing. I want to show you one of the most subversive passages in the Bible. Most of us, including me until recently, didn't really realize how subversive it was. Here's what it says in Luke 13. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's, a must, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. And you all said, my gosh, I can feel the subversive, revolutionary, rebellious overtones when you read that. Not so much. I'll tell you why. Because for us, when we read this, you can keep this on the screen for a second. When we read this, we don't really have a grasp of what a mustard seed is. If you read this, it's just this three sentences of the whole, he just describes the kingdom of God. And this is actually a hotly debated, you know, um, parable. 
But the parable means to sort of, uh, to throw alongside. This is what's really being said here. So he's throwing this stuff out at you, kind of giving people a chance to think about something. Parables in their very essence are in fact subversive because of what they do in our own head. They make us think about things we wouldn't otherwise think. And here is what he's saying. When we think about mustard seeds, probably if you've read the Bible before, you think about faith like a mustard seed. If you have faith like a mustard seed, Jesus says you can move, you can tell a mountain where to go, you can throw it into the sea, right, all that stuff. But here there's something different being talked about. The question we have to look at is what does a mustard seed mean to someone in the first century? There's a guy who's a, a Roman historian, natural historian named Pliny the Elder, which is, a, you know, he has a, he has a son, the younger. But uh, we'll stay with the elder. Here's, here's what I want you to see he says about mustard seeds. First century sort of natural story, and he says this. With its pungent taste and fiery effect, mustard is extremely beneficial for the health. It grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. Whoa. Jesus says... This insignificant little seed can be planted in a garden, but generally it tends to undermine all of the ordered neatness of a garden. And once it starts getting planted, you don't know how to remove it. It is the humblest of seeds. And yet the whole, the, what it can become is something that nobody can remove. All of what Jesus is doing and saying in his ministry is to say, there is something that is started here that seems so incredibly insignificant that will actually undermine all of the power structures of the status quo in the most subversive and powerful way. This is what we're looking at here. This kingdom of God starts small and insignificant and it undermines the whole garden. In the narrative of, birth, of Jesus' birth, we get an invitation to choose something. We get an invitation to choose the status quo. You have Caesar and all of his power and his means and his might. Everything that he has available to him. All of the systems that have been put in place for you to thrive in this world. All of the promises of that kingdom which say to you, if you participate in it, you will have untold wealth and life and freedom and happiness. If you'd only play in this system and by these rules. And Jesus who says... Do not play by that system's rules. Everything that you're hearing from Caesar is corrupt. Everything that you hear from Caesar intends to rob you of your own soul to serve itself. Don't listen to it and don't justify your own ways of living and acting because they're the way Caesar lives. No, 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 no. you have to choose something different. Luke is saying... It would make sense for everybody to buy into Caesar's system because he has so much power and his power is so evident. He has military might. He has money on his side. It makes sense to choose Caesar. He seems like all of the definitions of what a Lord would be. Or do you choose Jesus? This humble, God-come-near, born in a barn, from a know-nothing town and a no-name place, talking to and hanging around people who are unsavory, being with the, the peasants, those that nobody else wanted, the rejects and the outcasts, and who kept talking not about military might and force and about justification for having more. Instead, he kept talking about this radical kind of generosity. This guy who talked about forgiveness. This guy who talked about, in some way or another, working for the good of people who, who would never, ever repay you. That's, who he, that's the kind of thing that subverts power. 
Use your power for that kind of stuff, Jesus says. And so we get to choose. Who is your Lord? Is it Caesar? Or is it Jesus? When you are faced, like I am, with the multitude of things you can buy at incredibly rock-bottom prices, you still have Cyber Monday to you know, burn through your wallet. I, I do too. Do you say, just how do you answer this question? Who is Lord, Caesar or Jesus? When you have family interactions that are bound to happen in your own house or bound to happen within your network of family and there are justifiable reasons for acting and behaving certain ways that everybody who understands power and understands revenge would go, you're justified. Do you, who is your Lord? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? For me... The, and like for a lot of us, you know, Christmas in particular, but our, our own family dynamic creates the greatest exercise in that question. I have, you know, I have a kind of a busted up relationship with my own father, and I wonder sometimes about, you know, I'm justified in, in not acting and behaving in a lot of ways that would be otherwise Jesus-y, so to speak. But what would it look like for me to go, who is my Lord? Caesar, who says, you're justified, you, should, that you, were, you were taken from, things that were supposed to be there for you aren't there, and so you're justified in acting this way. Or Jesus who says, what if you lived a little differently than everybody else? What if, you, what if I was the Lord, Jeff? What, if, what would that look like for you? I hate that decision. It is the decision that people who follow Jesus have to make, not once in their life, but every single day, and it is hard. Who is my Lord? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? You see, Caesar would say to people, I don't care who you worship as long as I'm one of them. In fact, if I'm the top one, that's the, that's the way it should work. You can worship whoever else you want. And what we tend to want is to say, I want Caesar and I want Jesus. I want both. But if that's what Christians were saying in the first century, none of them would have been persecuted. Because it wouldn't have mattered. But they all kept saying, no, 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 there's only one Lord. It's Jesus. It's not Caesar. It's not anybody else. Who do you choose? Caesar or Jesus? Caesar or Jesus? Who's your Lord? And in the most subversive way, we get to live out the most undermining, beautiful, rebellious kind of lives where we say people who are unwanted, we want them. We get to say people who have wronged us, we forgive. We get to say all of the reasons why we'd be justified in striking back, we do away with those because we choose a different Lord, not one who strikes back and hoards power and authority, but one who says, I use my power and authority for generosity and for grace, forgiveness. Who's your Lord, Caesar or Jesus? The angel continues. Luke 2, verse 12 says this. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And what you have at the end of this part of Jesus' story, birth narrative, is you have the beginning starts with Caesar commanding people to go to their homes so they can be counted and taxed. And then at the very end of that whole story, you have humble shepherds acknowledging the, the presence of God and that these are the lowest people in human sort of, you know, essentially status. And then you have all of the heavens, not just one angel, but a whole company of angels saying glory to God in the highest heaven. Now that's a good news announcement. Caesar sends out a decree on a piece of paper with his stamp on it. And 
here's how Jesus arrives. The angels say, here's the good news for everybody. It won't just be for some people who are rich and powerful, be for those, everybody who acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. Now, nearly church gathered, what they would do, among other things, they would get together, they'd hear from the apostles. These are people who walked and talked with the risen Jesus. These are the apostles. And they would read the letters that the apostles are writing to the other churches and stuff like that. And they would say, hey, here's what's been going on and here's some issues we have to address. And the church would meet together and they'd read those letters and they'd hear from the apostles that they were teaching. And they would engage in a practice regularly to remind themselves who they have chosen, Caesar or Jesus. And that practice was something called communion or the Lord's table or the common table sometimes, the Lord's Supper. And here's what they would say. They would say essentially by choosing to eat this, we're remembering that we do not belong to Caesar, we belong to Jesus. By drinking of this cup, we recognize we do not belong to Caesar, we belong to Jesus. Caesar may be called the Lord and Savior, but there is only one Lord and Savior, and it is Jesus. And they would recite and recount kind of what had happened on that, on that last night, that last supper with his own disciples. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you eat this bread and drink this blood, or drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. And every time they would gather, they would say, we do this to remember Jesus, who is the Lord. Caesar is not the Lord, it is Jesus. And by somehow or in some way or another, by participating in this, we remember. And we, be, we participate in the subversion, subversion of the status quo. Because we don't play by Caesar's system anymore. We belong to Jesus. And so we're going to take communion in a little bit. The band will come up. And here's how this will work. First of all, you, as you come up, some of you may want to write some prayers down and place them in the prayer wall. Our prayer team prays for you, you know, weekly. Uh, for those of you who want to pray with someone, someone will be down here to pray with you. Love to do that as well. But this time is for you. And here's what will happen. There'll be some folks that'll be up front. If you, can, if you have a hard time making your way down here, there's some, also some stations in the back too. But um, what they'll do is this. People will, will, will just, they'll, hand, they'll hold out a, a little plate of bread and you take it and they'll say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And the response, you know, if you're wondering what to say, you don't know what, thank you, or what are you supposed to say? Just say amen. Amen is a word that means simply that's, that's true. And then take that bread and dip it into the cup. Some of you come from a tradition where you drink from the cup. So if you see someone kind of pulling the cup away from your mouth as you're like leaning towards it or whatever, just know that, you know, just not our tradition here. So all you do is you take the bread, dip it in the cup, and they will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, some of you are sure, you're not sure, like, okay, I'm not, I'm not really sure about this thing. I'm not, not sure about church. Or your friend brought you, great. You know, this is something that Christians do. There's no pressure to do it. It's something that Christians do. People who belong to Jesus who say, I want to remember who I belong to. There's no pressure to do anything here. In fact, this is something that's really just for people who have already committed their lives to Christ. And if you haven't yet, don't feel the need to participate unless you want to commit your life to Christ. Just simply say, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. I choose you, Jesus. You are the Lord. That's it. That's all that Christians are doing every day. So Jesus, would you close your eyes for a moment and then we'll, we'll take communion and I'll, I'll give you some instruction. Father, we acknowledge that one of the most countercultural things we can do is pause. That we can stop for a moment. We can subvert the power structure which says stay busy. And we can pause to hear your voice. And so Jesus... Would you bring about in us those things where we have difficulty choosing you over the systems and powers of this world? 
Where is it, Father, that we tend to sort of want Jesus and or Caesar and? Is it at work? Is it at school? Are there corners that we cut in our own compromises, in our own secret life, in our own hiddenness? Father, would you reveal those things to us that we might be freed from them? Father, for those who are hurting, who have buried a lot of pain, would you begin to minister? Would you begin to restore? Would you allow those people the freedom to be prayed for, to write things down that they might be prayed for and met? Father, we acknowledge as a group that the, the powers of this world and the powers of the status quo are well-funded. They are highly financed and they are speaking to us in very convincing terms. And Jesus, would we call those, those lies out that we might live free? That we might choose today and every day to call you Lord. We acknowledge with our whole lives, as difficult as that is to say that you are Lord, we are not, and Caesar and all the powers of this world are not. And so we take communion, remembering that you are Lord. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. So